Welcome to Zero Broke Girls. I'm Jules. And I'm Joe. We started Zero Broke Girls as a way to empower women to take control of their money. We think the first step is to simply start talking about it. So that's what we're going to do. We're so grateful you've joined us for this week's episode. Let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. Today, Joe and I are stepping a bit outside of our comfort zone into some legal framework when it comes to pay equality and pay equity. We are not lawyers, but Olivia Crossman is, and she's joining us today for the discussion. Olivia is a Franco-Ontarian lawyer working in human resources for the federal government of Canada. Prior to joining the government, Olivia began her career at a labor and employment law boutique before serving as in-house counsel to a national union. For three years, she taught human rights law in Canada at the University of Ottawa's Faculty of Law, and we'll be talking today about some of the topics she covered in this course. We learned so much today about the difference in pay equality and pay equity, as well as some advantages and limitations of the pay equity legislation. We also talked about some different things that can be done in an attempt to remedy the pay gap. We hope you learn as much as we did today. Hi, Olivia. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Congratulations on the podcast. It's awesome. Thanks. We are so excited and we're so excited to be venturing into a new topic that we haven't covered before. That's right. I guess to start, just Hmm. a little bit of background because we'll be covering pay equality and pay equity. That's right. Which is something that you teach in your course, Human Rights Law. So can you give us a little bit of background in... How did you start teaching human rights law? Sure. Um, So I started teaching human rights law at the Faculty of Law at U of O, uh, University of Ottawa, where I live, uh, in 2017. And I taught for three years. I'm taking kind of a break right now. Maybe your your listeners will be interested to know, because it's kind of like interesting career advice, which is that I actually just told a, a colleague of mine, we went out for coffee one day. I knew she was teaching um, a human resources class at Algonquin College here in Ottawa. And I just said, you know, I'd really be interested in teaching one day. Just, I just put it out in the universe. It, I TA'd um, when I was at university and it was just something I was really interested and passionate about. And it was something I kind of thought would be a good addition to, to my career. And I thought maybe eventually she'll take another mat leave, something like that, and she'll call me up. But no, a month later, I get a call from her and she's saying, listen, U of O just called me. They're looking for someone to take over for a prof who's gone on sabbatical teaching human rights law. Do you want the job? That's <laughs> amazing. <laughs> yeah. So I took over the class. I rebuilt the curriculum from scratch. Now, a bit of background on me at that point. I'm a lawyer by profession. I have, my career has really been focused on workplace issues and that always includes human rights. So human rights law in Canada pops up in lots of different areas of our lives, but most of the jurisprudence really comes from employment. So that's where I was coming from. And so when I built the syllabus, I came at it from that perspective and I really focused in on discrimination. And we talked about different forms of discrimination, indirect, direct, systemic. I'm gonna, might, we'll probably get into that a little bit later. I can talk about that some more. We explored different prohibited grounds of discrimination. So those are the reasons why you cannot discriminate against people in Canada. So that includes 
sex, which is what we're talking about today, but it also includes race, religion, sexual orientation, et cetera. So we kind of explored those topics and uh, we explore the different areas where it's prohibited to discriminate against people. I've mentioned employment, but it also includes housing services. So if you go into a shop, that's a service. And then we kind of use that framework to dig into areas of special interest or topical topics. And that included pay equity. So I had a whole class as part of the course that was devoted to talking about pay equity as an example of a remedy to systemic discrimination. So interesting. Yeah. So one of the things you mentioned is pay equity. And we hear a lot in the media about pay equality. Can you talk about the difference between the two? Sure. So really simply put, there's kind of these catchphrases. Pay equality is the right to equal pay for equal work or the same work. So if you are in a job and you're a woman, typically, and you're doing the same job based on the same experience, and there's, you know, factors that go into that as a man, and you're being paid differently, that's an issue of pay equality. However, pay equity in contrast is a bit of a more sophisticated issue. And the tagline for pay equity is equal pay for work of equal value. So it's not doing the same job and being paid differently. It's doing a job that's of equal value to the organization and being paid differently. So it's, and we can get into kind of the legal frameworks, but um, essentially that's the difference. How is value determined though? Because that would be such a difficult thing to say, you know, these two jobs that are different, how do you say they're the same value? Right. So the different pay equity regimes will have criteria. Typically, you look at the skills required to do the job, the conditions that the job is performed in, the responsibilities of the job. So there are kind of, there's like a framework that is used to evaluate the value of a job. So you can get into what, how an employer would go about uh, doing that. But the idea is that over time, over decades, you know, following the um, industrial revolution, our pay is essentially based on the same systems as, you know, almost a hundred years ago and work that's predominantly female. So think about nurses, uh, educators, um, anything in uh, retail, for example, or hospitality is historically undervalued and underpaid because we used to believe that women's pay was supplementary to the household. So it was like extra pocket money for uh, two two parent household. Whereas men were considered the breadwinners. And so their pay was meant to support a whole family. And so jobs that are predominantly male tend to be um, valued higher and therefore paid higher. So things like uh, truck drivers or firefighters or uh, doctors, those are, you know, some traditionally male dominated fields that are maybe paid higher than work of um, equal value predominantly done by women. That's so interesting. And so these systems that the discrimination is based on, so systemic discrimination, some of these systems are more than a hundred years old. It's just, wow. So you mentioned the legal framework. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So There's two different approaches in Canada. 
there's either a complaint-based system. So if you think you have um, a pay equity complaint, you can go to the appropriate tribunal or the appropriate commission and um, file a complaint and, and then go through with a, more or less a, a court, something that resembles a, a court process to resolve it. And in other jurisdictions, like in Ontario, there's a proactive approach. So that means that organizations in Ontario, public sector organizations and private sector organizations that have more than 10 employees have a legal obligation to conduct a pay equity exercise on a regular basis. That means they, without there being a complaint, they have to proactively assess all the jobs in their organization, determine where the female dominated jobs are and where the male dominated jobs are. So a female dominated job is typically one where there's somewhere between 55 and 70% of the people uh, in that job female and male dominated is the opposite. Once they do that, they have their female dominated jobs and their male dominated jobs. They evaluate the value of those jobs based on the criteria we talked about earlier, things like skill, effort, responsibility, conditions of work. And if the female dominated job is of equal value to the male dominated job, the pay has to at least be equal. If not, they must raise the compensation for the female dominated job class. And that includes everyone who the, has the female dominated job, including the men that have the female dominated job. And who determines the value? Yeah. So it depends on the size of the organization will okay. dictate the requirements. If you're in a very big organization, the pay equity exercise is conducted by a pay equity committee that would be formed of both employees and employer representatives. Um, and they would probably often be supported by a pay equity consultant. So it's a very complicated <laughs> and somewhat arduous, it can be a somewhat arduous exercise. For sure. And, but that is how it works in Ontario. So it's really interesting to talk about the pay equity, obviously, within one organization. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But what can be done or is there anything that's done across industries when you look at, you know, for example, a nurse and compared to, I think you said doctor, that used to be more male dominated versus female. Yeah. Like, is there anything that has been done in that realm? Yeah, right now, pay equity legislation, that's one of the limits to it or the disadvantages, if you will, is that it really only applies to one organization. Oh, now, I, the example you gave is interesting because both nurses and doctors can be uh, employees of the government and that's one organization. So one of the most recent um, high profile pay equity cases or pay equity related cases we've had lately in Ontario is that of the Association of Ontario Midwives and the Ontario government's Ministry of Health. And so the midwives filed a complaint saying that they were being underpaid relative to the physicians who provided obstetrics. And in 2018, the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario ruled in favor of the midwives and found that uh -huh. there had been systemic discrimination against them since 2005 on the basis of sex. And they came to that decision by comparing the rates of pay for the midwives to that of those physicians. Um, and then they, you know, the tribunal found that, that was the case and said, okay, parties go back and, you know, try to resolve the, the issue between the two of you. They were not successful. So in 2020, 
the tribunal came back and said, Ontario government, you need to give midwives a 20% pay increase and you need to conduct a pay equity exercise to determine the full extent of the pay equity gap between midwives and physicians because the expert evidence was that the pay gap might be as great as 48%. Wow. Yeah, and so that's a live issue. I don't know where they are in terms of actually implementing the order. The Ontario government appealed it um, and the divisional court found that it found in favor of the, the Midwives Association again. So while that is limited to one organization, the government is one big organization. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So to answer your question directly, no, there's no kind of legal mechanism to, to resolve pay equity across boundaries of organizations across society. And we can talk about what individuals can do, but you know, some organizations are very, very large. Yeah. Oh, it's true. And I have a lot of different roles that would include all of those mm-hmm. female or male-dominated roles. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So is it a fair statement to say that like pay equality would be more of an issue like within an organization of pay equity is more like cross-sector? Right. So pay equality is a more individual, it can be a more individual analysis because right. it's like, I'm doing this job, you're doing the same job, we're not being paid the same. Now, the same role. Bring, yeah, the same role, we're doing the same job. And you can bring uh, a complaint for a group on, on that basis, but generally, you know, it's it's a more apples to apples comparison. Right. Yeah. Pay equity gets at what we call systemic discrimination. And I, I referred to that earlier. Systemic mm-hmm. discrimination is discrimination that is unintentional, right? So there's no fault being assigned here, but it's discrimination that's as the, the result of behaviors, beliefs, workplace policies, business practices, like these really like nebulous factors. So it's really hard to pinpoint it and say mm-hmm. like, this is the problem, but the effects are pervasive. You know, we're talking that I think the statistic is, we're looking at about a 26 to 27% wage gap for Canadian women. That's as, as of 2015. And, you know, there's a bunch of different reasons for that. Not all of it is due to discrimination, but a, a big chunk of it is. And it's not, you know, your boss is a bad person. He's, or right. she is paying you less. It's, we're going back, you know, it's, it's due to attitudes going back, you know, like I said, almost a hundred years. Yeah. It's due to the like nature of like what, a family meant and what it meant to be a woman in the workplace. Like it's like, how it's crazy. Yeah. How, how, how can you <laughs> as an individual disrupt that? Exactly. And I mean, it's also due to things like women take more leave. So women tend to be sick more often. They tend to take disability leave more often. They also take parental leaves um, at a rate, you know, that far exceeds the, the rate that men take um, parental leaves. They perform more unpaid labor than men, both in the workplace and outside the workplace. Women also work fewer hours than men. So there's all these factors. And actually on that last point, just going back to what the gender wage gap means, women make 74 cents to every dollar that men make in Canada. That's as of 2015. But on an hourly basis, the wage gap is actually quite a bit smaller. On an hourly basis, women make 87 cents to every dollar than men make. Interesting. So part of the wage gap is that women actually work less hours. They're more likely to perform part-time work. 
So that's why I say like, it's not all part of discrimination. It's not all due to discrimination. Okay. So there are other reasons that can contribute to parts of it then. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned women more likely to take parental leave. That one's a tricky one too, right? Because all the stats exist on re-entering the workforce and the challenges that women face when they do in terms of getting promoted, in terms of salary, in terms of just basically getting back to work. So that's tricky. Right. And that would be the systemic discrimination element of the, the pay gap, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So you had talked about some limitations. Can you talk about other limitations or advantages of pay equity legislation? Sure. So from an employer perspective, and I kind of touched on it, it's a pretty uh, resource intensive process to conduct a pay equity exercise. You might end up hiring a pay equity consultant. And so even the most well-meaning employers aren't always, you know, really well equipped to do the exercise as well as it needs to be done. Some employers are not as well-meaning and enforcement can be spotty, right? Um, Mm. So organizations that don't fulfill their pay equity obligations aren't always called to task by the government. And, you know, some employers don't just, just don't understand what, what they're meant to do. I think though, that the most significant limitation, and I haven't said it explicitly, but it's been implied, is that pay equity legislation in Canada only addresses discrimination based on sex. It doesn't um, apply. It's only that female-dominated job class versus that male-dominated job class. Really? Yes. So if you, you know, I think you've mentioned in your shows before, but there's also a racial pay gap. There's also a disability pay gap. Oh, yeah. And while pay equality, you know, if you're a person with a disability and you say, I'm performing the same job as my counterpart and I'm being paid less for a reason that's connected to my disability, you would have um, probably a case there. But in terms of these like huge, you know, proactive pay equity exercises and these these big um, opportunities for redress, it only applies to um, sex. And so it's limited in what it can achieve. Wow. That's so interesting that it's so narrow. Yeah, it's narrow. Um, I think if you're in the midst of a pay equity exercise, <laughs> you think that it's very discreet. It's very intensive. And actually, that's about to become more uh, a more uh, topical uh, issue because, and this is just a good coincidence, as of today... Um, Canada's new Pay Equity Act is in force. So, yes. So I mentioned that. We picked a good day. We did pick a good day. I I didn't even know. And I looked it up today. I knew it was coming soon. And I was like, oh, it's August 31st. So I mentioned in Ontario, we have a proactive pay equity regime. So you have that, you know, employers have that responsibility to um, conduct a pay equity exercise on a regular basis and maintain pay equity within their organizations. That has now, that as of today is now also the the fact, the situation for the federal government. Um, so if you work for the federal government, if you work for a federally regulated employer, so a bank uh, or an airline, for instance, or you work for a federal crown corporation, those organizations now have a very similar um, obligation to conduct pay equity exercises. And so as of today, they have three years uh, to do that. Wow. So interesting. Yeah. So that's, it's, yeah, very, very topical. And that was a, um, 
a, a bit of a niche election issue in the last election. I don't know if a lot of people were like oh, <laughs> following that, yeah. <laughs> voting based on pay equity um, uh, promises. But yeah, so that's a, a new something new for Canada. Wow. So how does it work for an international organization? Oh, gosh. Now you're asking something that's outside of my expertise, for sure. I will say that um, Ontario and now, you know, our federal legislation is considered kind of the gold standard for pay equity, uh, progressive pay equity legislation in the world. And, you know, I think some people would point to that as a as proof that pay equity legislation, the um impacts are maybe limited because Ontario has had pay equity legislation since the 80s. And again, like I said, some of the best in the world, and we still have a pay gap. Has it improved at all? Are there any links to pay equity legislation and improvements in the gender wage gap? What I was able to find on that is that since 1981, so I think in Ontario, the legislation came into effect in 1988, but since 1981, the hourly pay gap has decreased by about 10 cents um, in 34 years. <laughs> but, the, you know, that's Canada-wide and pay equity legislation, we don't have proactive pay equity legislation across the country. So right. it's not really necessarily representative, but yeah, we the haven't done a ton. Maybe, yeah. yeah, we haven't done a ton of progress, unfortunately. It's tough because I, like, I can imagine practically, like even when you were talking about how it's just gender, we are like obviously yeah. shocked. And we're like, what? <laughs> As you've been talking since then, I'm thinking in my mind, like, how would they do cross industry, cross, mm. whether it be disability, race? Like, there's so many, it becomes such a matrix. Yeah. To actually, I mean, you execute that with some type of degree of, I imagine it'd be very challenging. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And it's challenging as it is, right? Um, mm -hmm. Like I said, you know, you could hypothetically implement pay equity legislation that applies to racial discrimination as well as the discrimination based on disability. But that's an additional onus, an additional burden that you're placing on an employer. And, and as we know, you know, those aren't always very politically popular. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Unfortunate. It's also so interesting because I just I keep going back to this idea of value, and I understand yeah. that there's a framework to quantify it. Yeah, it's just like it seems like such a qualitative thing to me. Absolutely. And so, anytime you're like putting ways to quantify a qualitative measure, like it, it can well, be a little subjective. I I don't know. It just seems like it. And I mean, I don't know a lot about public sector. Mm -hmm. so it's never really worked in public sector. Right. But I can imagine in private sector, you know, if I'm thinking 50,000 foot level about a company, whether it's a bank or a tech company or anything, I'm going to put more value on things that generate more money. But those jobs are also more often held by men. Right? Like you're not probably going to give like HR the highest value, though, you know, I mean. Oh, yeah. It's tough. Like, I. Because value is qualitative, but I would think there's also a very quantitative, like revenue generating versus revenue enabling. But then you're that. like putting the bias like right into the equation. For sure. Oh, for yes. sure. But I don't know how else you would do it. And as someone who, who works in human resources, I would make the argument that um, if you have strong human resources, um, you have a stronger workforce. Oh, I totally agree. And like <laughs> culture and engagement and all that stuff. I just don't know how you, to Julia's point, 
quantify that in a way that you can tangibly say this job produces the same value as that job. Yeah, it's it's uh, not an easy task and um, yeah. far from perfect. But, you know, part of the system, as I mentioned, uh, for large organizations is that you do have that pay um, equity committee that's made up of, of people from different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in an ideal world, there is some oversight from a in on the federal side, the Human Rights Commission. So there is, you know, there's some expertise there. But that's in your I'm ideal interested world. in your sphere because you obviously work mm-hmm. in this sphere and have a lot of contacts in this sphere. Mm-hmm. Is it women driving the charge, or is it women and men Gosh. driving this type of initiative? That's a really good question. I don't know that I've ever considered it, but just off the top of my head, now maybe your listeners will be like, "I that's not true," <laughs> but it. I was just you know brushing up on my research um, this morning, and the lawyers, for example, the lawyer who was at the head of the midwifery uh, case, she was a woman the head of the pay equity. So the pay equity commissioner is a woman. So it's the kind of people that are coming to mind off the top of my head are predominantly women. Caveat. And again, I'm just kind of spitballing here. For sure. Unions are very um, involved in this, in this um, fight for pay equity and unions are the, stru- the structure of unions is often very male dominated. And do you ever see a pay equity case, like you mentioned with the, with the midwives, it's mm-hmm. a mandated like 20% increase. Have you ever seen it go the other way where they say, okay, we're going to decrease men by 10%. Does that happen? Uh, no, because the, the legislation doesn't allow for that. It so only they allows don't for have an increase. to lose on their side of the equation. No, no. They, they don't. don't. Okay. Other than, I guess... I don't know, pride, <laughs> power, yeah, power, okay. pride. Yes. But there's no, the pay equity legislation doesn't allow for no an increase in pay. It's only an yeah. uh, increase in pay. And then, you know, if, for example, you're a male midwife, you also get the, the increase. I don't know if there's resistance to pay equity exercises from the male dominated job classes. So as women, hmm I mean, there's obviously the big systemic things, which it seems like there's a lot of effort going into in a very, like, systematic way across mm-hmm. these industries. But as individuals, what are things that you think women can do to help improve their own or just in general the wage gap? Right. So as we talked about, pay inequity is not intentional. It's not the result of, you know, something that's knowingly discriminatory but it's a societal, it's the, the, the result of societal choices. And so I think the solution needs to be on that level as well. So I'm actually going to flip your question on its head. Mm. I think women do, I think women do enough. I think it's I not, think a, so actually, yeah, I don't think it's on yeah. us to actually solve the gender wage gap. I think men need to step up and we've already mentioned it, but one very practical way that they can do that is take parental leave Yeah, when they w- welcome a new baby to their family. In my opinion, fathers taking parental leave is one of, if not the most significant and most impactful thing an individual can do to solve uh, gender pay discrimination in the workplace. Men um, can take leave. They can prioritize parental leave benefits when they you know, choose a job or they're evaluating compensation benefits. They can ask their employers to add parental leave benefits to their 
um, benefits package. Like these are all things that women already do. So, Mm -hmm. you know, Julia, you pointed out the kind of difficulties women go through when they leave the workplace for a certain time and then come back. If an employer knows that there's an equal chance that a man will do that as a woman, I think if you repeat that thousands and thousands and thousands of times over, you, if not eliminate, at least significantly reduce the discrimination that uh, women experience. So to answer your question directly, since it was like, what can women do? No, I think that's a really interesting, I'm thinking about it as like, as you're talking and I think it's so intertwined though with the pay equity discussion, because Mm -hmm. if I think of when, like when I was evaluating how long I would go on Mali for and things like that, at the time, my husband made more money than me. So yeah, it makes I, was gonna, sense. I was just going to say for most people. <laughs> yes. Or I shouldn't say for most people. I don't think that's a fair statement anymore. Now that's that's all over the place, but it's but I common. Think I've heard this very, very common that like you pick the higher shy. earner and they yes. keep working and then the other person stays home. But yes, um, isn't it interesting? It's always home. the higher earner is always often the man. And it's, well, it's funny because I actually considered with, with our first not taking maternity leave. And we talked about, we talked about like what that would look like. And Mm because I really, at the time I really liked my job. I was in a really good spot. Um, I was at a really high, like earning potential point, Mm -hmm. but after like, after having him, like we, I didn't, I ended up deciding to stay off and I only stayed off for about four months, but after having him Mm -hmm. now thinking about it, like for my second child, I'm like, the month after I had him, the two months after I had him, the hormones, the feeding, the figuring it out, even if my husband had stayed home, right? I don't know if I could have worked through all of that other stuff. Absolutely. There's um, things and I, we can offset, but there's things that we just can't. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now I will say, uh, as of very recently, we have up to 18 months of leave. Uh, I know parentally that can be divided between the partners and the traditional one year can also be divided uh among the partners i'm going to miss the number of weeks that's cool but it's only the first 20 odd weeks that are for the birthing mother um but the balance is for you know parents either parent yes either parent and so you can divide that the way you want so you know going back to what you said where you know if your partner, your male partner is, is the higher earner, what I think women can do is support and encourage the men in their lives to take as much leave as possible. I have heard from uh, someone I know that her husband did not take parental leave because he was ambitious, which I think was well-meaning, but it implied in my view that all women who take parental leave are not ambitious. Um, For sure. Yeah. So I think that's something that we can do to disrupt those assumptions. But of course, you know, it depends on every individual's um, circumstances. I suspect more men can take parental leave than than do. I think that's really true. Um, Yeah. Especially with the government. Like, I mean, obviously private sector is different, but if Mm -hmm. you're a public sector employee, they have such amazing benefits packages. Well, and interestingly, to your point, Joe, I think more women join the public sector because of this. I know. It's, so I, what if men join the public sector because of those benefits as well? 
Um, yeah, it needs I, to be a priority for yeah. them, right? Like when they're looking yes. for work, it's like at the top of a lot of women's like priority list is looking for that. And I, I just don't think men have that same priority list when they're looking or they haven't had to in the past. I think the same principle to like male, like men in that household doing more of the household labor. Like mm-hmm. I've had, I've been lucky in my job to have very good male mentors and male colleagues, like on mm. the pay equality side, right? Open about what they make and oh, wow. things yeah. like that, that have drastically helped me negotiate a better position. Now, a lot of the time, I find you know, you find the information like two years later, and you're like, <laughs> um, but I think there is a role for men to play in the equality piece too, because mm-hmm. a lot of the time we're talking to our friends about it, and like we're all in the same boat, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah, and I also wonder if, and this goes to kind of a, a principle that's applied to all areas of, of human rights law and discrimination, where while the law is not that preoccupied with intent when it comes to a finding of discrimination, it's very difficult to be told you did something that's sexist, you did something that's racist. And in fact, that's one of the worst things in our society that you can be told, you know, you are, you are racist or you are sexist. And so there's a big, I think culturally, there's a lot of defensiveness to being told. So for example, in like what you're saying, Joe, if, if men maybe know instinctively that they're benefiting from an unjust system in their workplace, is that, that's very uncomfortable it's a very uncomfortable, sure. even though it's not, it's not their fault. You know, they no, didn't no. build the system. They're, they're in the same. They didn't decide the their us. own salary. They, it was right. given to them. Yeah. I think there's a built-in incentive to kind of not be so uh, open about And what is the legal, like, I mean, I've been told my entire career by bosses, managers, mm-hmm. don't talk about your pay. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. Talk about it. Like I remember being in university, and um, when I got my job offer at that time, they were like, "This is your offer, but confidential. Like, mm-hmm. don't talk about it with anybody else." And at the time, I was like, "Of course not. Why would I ever do that?" Yeah. Is there anything, like, actually, from a law, from a legal perspective, like, is it actually confidential, or like all these things about people who are like, "Oh, everyone's pay should be public." Like, is that possible even? Okay, so yes, it's possible. There was legislation in Ontario that would, for certain employers, typically it's based on the size of the employer, uh, would require employers to make salaries public on job postings. So that oh, is, like that. yeah, that is legislation in certain jurisdictions already. Um, but that was, that piece of legislation was reversed. Um, oh. So it's <laughs> no longer in effect, or it never really kind of came to fruition. There are, um, again, depends on the jurisdiction, depends on a bunch of different things, but there is also legislation that prohibits um, retribution for sharing pay information. So if you shared your pay information and then suspected that your employer disciplined you or even terminated your employment because of that, there are, you know, certain uh, avenues to for remedy depending on the jurisdiction um and some and then in some areas there's nothing so in some areas well actually in a lot of non-unionized environments it's possible for an employer to terminate an employee for no reason at all 
and, right. you know, maybe they terminated you because you shared your, your pay, but it might be extremely difficult, if not impossible and useless. Mm-hmm. I always just wonder if it like made man like how much more difficult a manager's job would be if everyone's on their team all of a sudden knew everybody else's pay. But that is what it's like in government, Joe. I know. <laughs> and interestingly, I didn't talk about the you know, pr- probable reasons for the gender wage gap, but one of them is that man, men are overrepresented in unionized jobs and the pay gap, the pay gender gap is much smaller in unionized jobs. I've actually read that as well. Yeah. So what's one thing, or if you have more, more, um, you wish you knew sooner about money and it could be anything. Um, yeah. So I've thought a lot about this and this might, I think this is, I've, you know, listened to several of your episodes, not all of them. So I don't know if, if anyone has said this yet, but I think um, maybe contrary to a lot of your, your guests, as I've heard, I'm actually instinctively a pretty conservative spender. And I've had in the past, sometimes a lot of anxiety around how much I spend. Like I am kind of always oh my God, did I spend too much? Did I spend too much? Did I spend too much? That's me. Oh is my that? God, yeah. <laughs> and so information is power. When I started tracking my expenses, you know, for a lot of people, they do that so that they can control their spending and that it helps me too in certain areas, but it also makes me relax a little bit. Takes the anxiety out of it. Takes the anxiety out of it because I know, you know, okay, we can splurge on that item. Like my husband right now, really wants new wheels for his bike his his like not not a motorcycle but a, a pedal bike. bike really wants new wheels and knowing you know our expenses knowing what what our savings goals are i'm able to say like okay i'm comfortable with that purchase even though the number seems really big i'm comfortable with that purchase cuz i've seen the numbers he's like we're going to be going to be cycling on these a million times over it's great value and i don't doubt that that's right but that means nothing to me if mm-hmm. we've under we've not saved what we set out to this year, right? Yeah. I don't care how many times you're going to ride the tires; they're too expensive. But if I have the numbers and I see, oh, actually, we've gone above and beyond our savings goal this year. We have that that room that makes the decision making as a couple a lot easier. So if you're someone who's the frugal person in your relationship and you're always in a in a position, you're always being put in a position of having to say no to stuff hate that and my husband's always coming to me and be like can I buy this and I have to say no and I'm like oh but so I'm just, look, at, look at the finances? numbers do you manage your finances for me we household? jointly we jointly manage our finances oh, okay and we track all of our expenses but I'm the one who has a more avid interest in it for sure like <laughs> he he'll he does the exercise but I'm the one like looking at the numbers I run you know averages over time I oh, love it Yes. And it's, like I said, it can be very freeing. It tells you what yeah. you actually can't afford. Because people will say like, oh, can you afford this? I can't afford this. I can't afford this. And I'm like, what is that based on? It has to be based on numbers. It has to be like rooted in something. Yeah, that's great advice. And it's interesting because I think there's so much anxiety when it comes to looking at your numbers. But what you're saying is by looking at your numbers, you're actually reducing the anxiety because you know exactly where you're at. And you know what you can spend. Exactly. And I'm maybe breaking a stereotype here because lawyers are like notoriously awful with numbers. But really? My, yes. Yeah. Know that. yeah. 
There's a little bit of math involved in in employment law, and um, it really freaks a lot of lawyers out. Not not this one. Amazing. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Olivia. This has been such an interesting conversation. And yeah, so different than uh, all of our other conversations so far. So I learned so much. Thank you so much for having me. I am glad you learned something. And uh, best of luck with uh, your, your podcast going forward. Thank you so much. Don't forget to subscribe. And join us every Tuesday for a money date wherever you listen to your podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Zero Broke Girls for details on upcoming episodes, how to find our guests, and more. As always, if anything you hear sparks something you'd like to talk or learn about, let us know. We would absolutely love to hear from you. Thanks for joining us. We can't wait to chat next week.